Good morning again. Um, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 35 today. And as you're turning there, I just want to tell you a, a true story that happened uh, to a man named John. And John was involved in a highly, uh, uh, a fairly high-risk, high-reward investment. The idea was that John was going to invest in a mining company. And the goal was pretty simple. Recruit as many people as you can to invest and hope to see your money expand exponentially in a short period of time. And, you know, it had great potential. If it was successful, people would make tons of money. But the risks were apparent. Obviously, you could lose everything if this didn't pan out. And so in the recruitment process, John found a man named Steve. And he told Steve about this business and told him about the risks and the benefits and how he should consider joining in financially as well. And Steve said, okay, sure, sign me up. And so Steve ends up signing this disclosure form, acknowledging the risk of the company and the potential for loss. And with that sign, he joins in financially. And unfortunately, like many things in life, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And in this case, the mining company was a complete failure. And almost everyone who invested in that company lost all that they had invested. And that's just often how it goes when you invest in risky things like this. However, Steve not only just held a grudge over John for how he invested and how he um, told him about this investment, but he held him personally responsible for his losses. He blamed him for getting involved, and ultimately he would not let go of his anger towards him. And though there was attempts to be reconciled, Steve would have none of it. And years later, Steve, interestingly enough, was in leadership at a church where John attended. And Steve was speaking on this very passage that we're going to look at today on forgiveness and the power of, of it and how we need to forgive in light of how much we have been forgiven by the Lord. And then he paused in the middle of the message and looked out to the audience where he saw John and stared directly at John and said, but John, if you think that for one second this message applies to me forgiving you, then you are sorely mistaken. And to this day, Steve has never reached out to John to be reconciled and has never forgiven him for his own decision to invest in a company that he full well knew the risks and benefits of before he joined. And as of today, Steve has still held a grudge over John for over 40 years. And this is a sad but true story of unforgiveness. Today's topic is on forgiveness, something that is very easy and straightforward to talk about in theory, and yet practically applying this to our lives can sometimes be very difficult. Because we're all sinners, we all live in a fallen world, we are all bound to have disagreements at some point or another. Inevitably, we will offend another person. We will behave wrongly or we will say something that was offensive. We will hurt others by our actions. But how we handle these situations once they have occurred uh, depend entirely upon us. Whenever there is a broken relationship or a marriage or a friendship or a family relationship, you will find that more often than not, it's because one or both parties were unwilling to forgive. If there is a willingness on one or both parties to forgive, then there is always the ability to restore that relationship. And administering forgiveness is critical for three reasons. It's important for just having an effective Christian walk. It's critical for our physical health. And most importantly, it's because it's what the Lord commands us to do. Think about your life. Imagine for a week, let's say, that time went by where no one forgave the other person. 
at the end of the week, you would not have any relationships existing because at some point during that week, someone would have said something that was offensive or hurtful. Someone would have done something that was wrong or, or wasn't taken the right way. In, the, in effect, a week's time would pass and all relationships would cease to exist because everyone would be holding something against another person. And forgiveness, as you can tell very easily, is key. It's crucial to our lives daily. But the question is, that arises in many people's minds, is how many times am I supposed to forgive someone who's hurt me? How many times am I supposed to forgive that person who offends me? One time? Two times? Three times? We find this answer in Matthew 18, 21, because Peter asked Jesus this very question. He says in Matthew 18, 21, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now Jesus had just spent the better part of this chapter giving instructions to his disciples on how the members of the kingdom of God should behave. He teaches them how to conduct themselves. And in the previous section that we had dealt with, uh, it was on church discipline and how we are to handle situations uh, where our brother or sister in Christ offends us. He tells us to first go to that brother in private, address the issue. If they don't hear you, bring one or two others. If they won't hear them, bring it to the church. And ultimately, as we saw through that passage, the goal of that was to have a restoration of the brother. It was to win them back. The goal is not to continue wallowing in offenses that never get reached uh, or get, never get resolved, but it's to address the issue, to have them realize their sin and then administer forgiveness when they repent. And so Peter then asked, well, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, based upon uh, the teaching on, on Peter's day, um, according to some of the Jewish rabbis that I've looked up, this would be an exceedingly generous amount of times to forgive someone. Um, I may be butchering the name, so excuse me for that, but Rabbi Jose ben Hamena um, was quoted, and one of the rabbis near uh, or around the time of Peter said, in a quote, he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. And so it was kind of this, I guess at the time, established fact that you had a quota, essentially, that you could seek forgiveness from someone else three times, and any time after that, you're kind of pushing the limit of how much you're supposed to be seeking forgiveness. Another rabbi is quoted, um, his name is Rabbi Jose ben Yehuda, who said, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive. And so we see, based upon the Jewish teaching at the time, uh, there was a limit to your forgiveness. There was a limit on how much was expected upon you to forgive a person. And it seems like the magic number was three. After three times, you were no longer obligated, according to their teaching, that you would be responsible for this. And so in Peter's mind, him supposing up to seven times would be extremely gracious and loving beyond what anyone would do. And I, as I think in my own life, seven times forgiving a brother who's offended me sounds like a lot of times. That seems like I would be quite gracious to extend forgiveness that many times. And you would think that as the Lord hears Peter suggesting seven times, you would think, well, he would be very pleased to hear how loving and gracious Peter is to be willing to do that. But as we see the response, um, seven times is, is not, the, uh, not the magic number. He says in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And for those of you who uh, don't like doing math, I did it for you. It's 490. And it's not saying that, you know, at offense 491, 
you then are no longer obligated to forgive the person. The idea, it's a figure of speech that really means that we are to indefinitely or unlimitedly administer forgiveness if a brother offends us. And the inevitable question that would follow would be, why? Why should I forgive my brother if he has wronged me that many times? And so to answer this question, Jesus continues on in this uh, section, in verse 23, throughout the rest of the chapter, to give a parable on why we need to forgive and the consequences that come from an unwillingness to forgive. And so we'll read in verse 23 uh, to 35. It says in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that he had been, what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. <clears throat> so here in the story we have, or in this parable, we have a king who he wants to clear his books uh, of the debts that are owed to him. And as he's flipping through this, I guess, debt book, he comes across a man who owes him 10,000 talents. And uh, while this doesn't sound like too much uh, money, because if we think in terms of dollars, $10,000 is you know, relatively small in terms of debt. Um, but the question that arises is, what, what is a talent worth? And so I had to do some research to figure this out, to put it into today's perspective. And according to my research, a single talent is worth 6,000 days of wages. So that's essentially on a five-day work week, that's 23 years of wages. Uh, assuming a person works five days a week for all 52 weeks of the year, and I looked up, and this seems rather small, but the median income in the U.S. right now is $36,000. So if you multiply 23 years of work times $36,000, you get the value of a single talent, which is $831,000 in today's market. But he didn't just owe a single talent. He owed 10,000 talents, and uh, if you do the math, his debt is brought to a total of $8.3 billion, with a B, dollars. The point is the man could never repay this debt. He could work every day the rest of his life, and he wouldn't even put a dent in the debt that was owed. And the point that Jesus is trying to make by using this large number is that the man could never pay off his debt. He was completely at the mercy of the king. And so in verse 25, we read what he does. He says, but as his master was not able to pay, or but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. And so the king, essentially realizing that he can't pay this debt, commands his whole family be sent into 
slavery, basically, to be sold to, in order to recoup even a small fraction of what was owed to him. He would never get the entirety of that debt back, but he knew that even, even a small portion of maybe working off some of it would be helpful. And so this man, realizing his situation, realizing the enormity of the debt, does what anyone who is desperate in this moment would do. And he falls down before the king and begs. He says in verse 26, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And as he pleads to the king to be patient with him, he is overly optimistic about his ability to pay this debt off. He uh, doesn't quite realize probably how insurmountable this debt is that he's accrued. But a desperate man it will say anything in a desperate situation. And so here he is begging before the, cle- begging before the king, pleading his case. And the king, realizing his inability to ever pay it, says that he's moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. It's an incredible act of mercy that the king released this man from his debt and he was completely forgiven. An incredible act of forgiveness. You know, we, in our lives, have been forgiven a debt as well. The debt was much larger than the $8.3 billion that this man was uh, forgiven of. In fact, if you amassed all of the world's wealth cash-wise and all the precious stones, uh, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, pearls, if you took together all the uh, natural resources, gold, silver, platinum, anything like that, combine it all in one heap, it still would not provide you enough money to ever make a dent in the debt that you owed. Even if you tried doing charitable things, working you know, at, I don't know, food banks or donating your time to the homeless shelters, um, or any kind of community service, you would never be able to lower your debt. Everyone at one point or another owed a sin debt. And the punishment for that debt, and the rightfully deserving punishment for it, was an eternity in the lake of fire. And as you continue on your life, the debt not just doesn't get smaller, it only accumulates larger and larger and larger because throughout your life, you only continue to sin more and more. And all of us owed this immense debt and we had no way of paying it off we were all hopeless. But if you're a believer today, you'll also remember that at one point in your life, you begged for mercy from God because you knew that he was the one that you offended in doing those sins. And we begged him and pleaded with him to forgive us. And as you also remember, if you're a believer today, how wonderful it was to know that your debt had been paid in full. Not though because God canceled the debt or because he was willing to overlook your sin, No, there was full and just payment for your sin. And we remember that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He endured the wrath and punishment that we rightfully deserved. He paid a debt that we could never pay had we worked every day of our lives, had we given all the money we had together. It would never pay off our sin debt. He paid it in full completely. And not just for the sins of the past, but for the sins of the present that we do on a daily basis and for the sins we'll commit in the future years from now. He paid for it entirely. We have been forgiven an immense debt, a debt that we could never pay off. I think the hymn writer thought of this idea as he wrote um, this hymn uh, where he quote, in quote, he says, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. In realizing how merciful God has been to him and realizing the weight that he had over him. He is so gracious and so, and so thankful to the Lord for what he has done in forgiving him his sin and, bearing, and now he no longer has to bear it. 
Like the king was merciful to the servant, God has been merciful to us. He didn't have to send his son to die for us. He could have um, allowed us to just all go to hell, and we would rightfully deserve that punishment. He didn't have to make a way of salvation. He could have left us all on our own. But he kindly and graciously did provide a way. And as we think about this man who was forgiven 10,000 talents of debt, it should remind us of the infinite debt that we owed and that Christ paid for on our behalf. And because of what Christ has done in forgiving us, we can now extend that same amount of mercy and forgiveness to other people. What a tremendous thing, though, to remember, though, the joy that you had when you first realized that that sin debt was no longer owed, that he had done it for you. I remember in my own life, I felt like I was on cloud nine. I felt as light as a feather. I could just go around telling everyone else. It didn't matter to me what happened, good or bad, in life after that. I knew that I was forgiven. I knew that I was no longer responsible for that debt. This servant was set free. He had been forgiven so much, $8.3 billion in today's value. And so in light of that, you would have expected him to have left that encounter overjoyed, completely appreciative of the grace and the mercy that was shown to him and that was demonstrated towards him, willing to do the same towards anyone who came his way. And yet, how does he respond just moments after that encounter? In verse 28 it says, But that servant went out and found the one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet, begging him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. I mean, what kind of man do we have here? He has just left the presence of grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness of his debt. And the second he leaves, it's as if he is on the prowl to find this person. He is seeking him out, finds him, aggressively takes hold of him and holds him by the neck, presumably to show him that he was willing to go to any extent to get back what he was owed, even if it meant taking his own life. Um, And the servant who had just been forgiven is now holding this man by the throat demanding payment. Not exactly the actions you would expect from a man who had been just forgiven such a tremendous amount of money. And I think we should also point out how much money was even owed to him. It says in here 100 denarii, which is essentially 100 days of work. In today's value, I've calculated out it's $14,000, which is insignificant in comparison to $8.3 billion. And yet, he is out for his money. He wants full payment, and he wants it immediately. And the fellow servant does exactly what the now forgiven servant does, and he begs for mercy. He begs for time to pay it off. And certainly over time, this man could have very easily paid off this debt, give him a few months, even a year. He could easily pay off $14,000. But that wasn't good enough for him. He wanted the money, and he wanted it right away. And so instead of lending him forgiveness, instead of um, even forgiving him of the debt entirely, um, he brings him and throws him into jail until he will pay it back. It's just such an enormous contrast between how the king handled the same situation and how the fellow servant handled it. They were both in the position to offer forgiveness, both in the position to extend forgiveness and offer grace. And yet, the one who was just forgiven this enormous debt could not even forgive a small debt of his fellow servants. And that's not where the parable ends, though, because we see what happens after that when the king hears word of this. Because after the king hears word from a fellow servant about what this now forgiven man just did, 
The master calls him back and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So after this update about what he just did, the king is appalled who, at how he didn't even have an ounce of compassion or pity for his fellow servant. And the king then delivers him to the torturers until he pays back the debt in entirety of $8.3 billion. And the story ends with this final, um, final verse in 35 where it says, So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. The message is very clear of the parable. You are that first servant. You have been forgiven billions. God is the king. He, he is the one who had mercy and pity on you. He's the one who forgave you. And he lovingly sent his son Jesus Christ to the cross to pay for your sins. And you are so blessed to come and be here every day. Every day that you wake up knowing that you are free from that debt that you owed. And now in light of that, in light of how much we have been forgiven, should we not also freely extend forgiveness to those that offend us, to those that hurt us? Because the offenses and hurts that we receive from other people are microscopic in comparison to the vastness of offenses that we've committed against God. And so if a brother or sister comes up to you and admits they're wrong and seeks forgiveness, the Bible is clear that it's our duty and our obligation to forgive them. We do not withhold forgiveness because we want to see them suffer or feel like we have one up on them. And yet, this is exactly what many people do. God makes it clear that a believer who does not forgive his brother a few thousand dollars after being forgiven billions will not go unpunished. And there's at least two ways in which we see this being true. Uh, I think one, both, one physically and the other spiritually. From a physical standpoint, the act of being unwilling to forgive or holding resentment towards someone comes at a cost. I know many people who have said something along the lines of, even if they said they were sorry, even if they came to me and apologized, I would never forgive them for what they did to me. And they essentially hold this grudge or this resentment towards that person for the rest of their lives. And if the person seeks to be forgiven, they refuse to forgive because they almost enjoy holding something over them that they messed up in the past and I'm not going to let them go of that debt of offense um, that they've done towards me. And there are many people who just simply refuse to forgive. And the ironic thing is that typically a person who holds a grudge believes that they are the one who holds the power. They're the one who believes that they hold the upper hand. They believe that they are better off holding the hurt or offense than giving the other person the comfort and assurance of knowing that they are forgiven. And yet, I was looking at a study uh, from the John Hopkins Hospital about forgiveness, and they studied it and found there's an enormous, this is in quotes, there's an enormous physical burden of being hurt and disappointed. Holding resentment and being unwilling to resolve conflicts results in a higher risk of having a heart attack, higher levels of anxiety, depression, and stress, that leads to the development of ulcers. It results in increased cholesterol, reduced sleep, and increased blood pressure. Blood pressure. On the other hand, forgiveness, they say, calms stress levels, leading to an improved health um, and uh, overall, well, overall better well-being. So even from a physical standpoint, the body is not made to hold a grudge or hold resentment towards another person. 
You were created to forgive and let go of the bitterness and resentment that a person uh, has offended you with. There is a story that I found kind of interesting as I was uh, studying this passage of a school teacher who gave an elementary class an assignment. And the assignment was to bring in as many potatoes as you could to the classroom. And uh, she didn't tell them what it was for, but when they brought in the bag of potatoes, she then, uh, you know, they have probably hundreds of them in the classroom. She tells the students, okay, now I want you to take a potato and write down on the name of it, uh, one, one name per potato, the people that you hate. The people who have offended you on the, in the playground or people who in your life have done you wrong or something like that. And so some kids take one potato and just write down a name. Others take them by the dozen and they start writing down names. And she says, okay, now, now that you've finished writing it down, put them in your backpack. And I want you to carry it around for the next week. And so after you know, class leaves, they start loading up their backpacks. And by the end of the week, half the kids have already disposed of their potatoes because it got too heavy. And at the end of it, there's still some kids who had decided to hold the potato the entire week. And they finally end it where they unload it. And kind of the relief you can see on the kids' faces when they are finally finished not holding the potatoes any longer. But her point was brought across pretty well that bitterness and hatred, it weighs you down. The burden that you're carrying around is totally unnecessary. There is, and, and like the kids showed in their faces, there is a sense of relief that goes when resentment and bitterness are freed from you, when you decide to let go of that and forgive the person. It frees you from the burden that weighs only not you, but also that person as well. So that's just from the physical standpoint. But from a spiritual standpoint, the Bible is also very clear that when we choose to not forgive, when we decide that we are not going to administer forgiveness, that we are not in a proper fellowship with God. Because even in the prayer that the Lord gives as an example on how to pray, it even says in it, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, how can we expect God to forgive us our debts of sin if we are not first already forgiving those who have hurt us? The assumption is that we are already doing that. And so if we're going to be receiving forgiveness from God for our sins that we commit daily, then we ought to also be administering that forgiveness to others as well. We cannot expect God to use us effectively in ministry or for his work if we have not first forgiven those around us. This verse also makes it very clear that it says in the final verse that from his heart he must forgive the person. And I think this is an important distinction to make because many people say, it's fine, I forgive you, don't worry about it, it's, it's good, we're fine, we're fine. But that's what they at least say outwardly. But you know that maybe later down the road when you do something else, they'll then bring up that situation again and you realize that they didn't fully forgive you for that situation and that it's something that they're just holding off in this memory bank of when they can bring it back up potentially to use against you as an argument or an excuse for why they're right. Uh, and they'll, some people will continue harboring grudges for years, decades, sometimes even a lifetime. But the Bible is clear, we must forgive, not just by saying the words, but from our hearts, forgive them for what they have done. Uh, probably the most touching story I came across as I was looking through this passage um, was a, a story of a man uh, named Brant Jean. This is a true story of a man who decided to take the first steps and forgive someone uh, in his heart for the offenses that they had committed against him. And these are pretty significant offenses. He had a brother named Botham who was murdered by a woman who entered uh, his apartment, and she thought it was her own apartment, 
She shot and killed him. And later, she was tried in court and found guilty of murder and then sentenced to jail. And after hearing, uh, after the hearing, uh, Brant, his brother, was given the opportunity to administer a victim impact statement. And I want to show you this clip um, because while the other family members were unwilling to forgive, and many of them even said things along the lines that they hoped she rot and die in jail, um, Brant, a professing believer, comes up to the stand and gives a powerful statement on, um, on, on how he perceived the situation and, and what he wanted to just tell her. So I'll just play the clip. It's like two, two and a half minutes, and then uh, I'll, I'll come back. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do and the best would be give your life to Christ I'm not going to say anything else I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do again I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. touching the story I've watched that and every time I feel like uh, even though I've seen this probably 30 or 40 times it's still very emotional just seeing the the level and the billing the willingness of him to forgive um, they later interviewed him after this situation and they said you know what exactly led to this and he said you know honestly I I'm a Christian myself and I I found that I didn't want to be harboring anger or bitterness like the rest of my family was I realized that, and he said in quotes, 
Who am I to withhold forgiveness from someone? I know God has forgiven me so many times when I've messed up. She's a person like anyone else and has made a a mistake that I'm sure she regrets, and I can't have this weighing me down. And so he decides that he said, you know, I, I not only just want to tell her these words, I want to physically show her so that she knows that it's more than just words that I genuinely do truly forgive her for, her for her actions. And as you saw, he did forgive her. And so it's, it's just a great example of what forgiveness looks like, of forgiving someone from your heart. Uh, and now, you know, as you're hearing this, and as you're listening to this message throughout, you may have someone come to your mind as someone that you have not forgiven. And, you know, they may have come to you in the past and they were seeking forgiveness, but maybe at the time you were unwilling to forgive them for whatever reason. And people do have various reasons why they won't forgive a person or why they can't, but I think it all goes back to the lack of realization of how much you have been forgiven, which is really the whole point of the passage. As you read of the parable of the man who was given, forgiven so much by the king, you realize that that man is you. You were the one who was forgiven so much. You were forgiven that great debt by the Lord. He looked upon you when you begged for mercy with compassion and love. And if you're a believer, we were all in that position, beggars for mercy, and he forgave you fully. He didn't say, well, you know, let me think about it. This, or, okay, just this one time, but next time it's not happening. Or maybe I'll just forgive you three times, and then after that you're responsible for it. No, he, he constantly forgives us, not just for our past sins, but it even tells us in 1 John 1, 9, that he continually forgives us. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a daily forgiveness that he offers us, too. And the Lord isn't like us who holds a memory of our transgressions over us. He doesn't bring it back up when we've sinned again. In fact, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He keeps no track record of our sins that he has forgiven. He doesn't withhold forgiveness either. He is gracious. He is willing to forgive us as soon as we come to him with it. Now, just think about whatever offense that someone has done against you. In light of that, how insignificant is that, that you're holding? No person will ever offend you to the extent that your sins have offended God, and yet he forgave you completely when you sought forgiveness. So when we reflect upon God's forgiveness towards us, we remind ourselves of the infinite debt that we owed. And with that in mind, anything that someone does should be quite easy to forgive. Remember, too, as you think about that issue in your life, remember that God first forgave you. I was thinking about Ephesians 4.32, where it says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I wanted to just end this message with a short story that you're very familiar with, uh, a story found in the Old Testament of the life of Joseph. And I think this just, his whole story embodies forgiveness. It embodies a life of choosing to forgive despite all sorts of offenses that were done towards him. The story, as you're very familiar with, goes where he was a teenage boy, beat up by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, He is then a slave serving a ruler named Potiphar, only to then get falsely accused by his wife of sexual misconduct. And then after that, being thrown into prison, where he is forgotten about for years, 
then to one day interpret a dream of Potiphar, uh, interpret a dream, and he became second in command over all of Egypt. Years down the road, his brothers, who had sold him into slavery, had caused him all this grief, are now face to face with him because they have to come to get some food from the place where now Joseph is now ruling over, or is at least in charge of the food over. And when they finally come to Joseph face to face, how do you think after all these years Joseph would respond? Would he get revenge on them? Would he refuse to speak with them? Would he be harboring bitterness and resentment towards them all along? No. In fact, we're finally told that when they find out it is Joseph speaking to them, his brothers become fearful because they know in a worldly sense that he should hate them. He should want nothing to do with them. And he probably had the power to throw them in jail and to even kill them if he wanted to. But Joseph realized that God used even their own wickedness to bring about something extraordinary. And Joseph chose to forgive his brothers despite all that he, they had done to him. And uh, it's interesting, too, because later down the road, his brothers start to doubt his forgiveness. They wonder, was he just doing that because our father was still alive? Maybe he didn't truly mean it. And they start thinking that once his father Jacob dies, that maybe this is the time he'll take revenge upon them. And when Joseph hears this, he's grieved. And it says that he weeps and thinks uh, about thinking about this, that they would think he still has bitterness and an unforgiving heart towards them. And so Joseph reaffirms his love towards them and reminds them that they are indeed forgiven. He says in a very well-known section in Genesis 50, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And Joseph truly did from his heart forgive them. It's a testament to the fact that Joseph realized that God's forgiveness of his own sins, his own uh, deeds that he has done, therefore, God has already done that in forgiving his sins. And therefore, he can administer that forgiveness as well to others. He realized that God had used a terrible situation, a situation that no one should have to go through for God's goodness. And so Joseph demonstrated Christ's likeness in administering forgiveness to those who had wronged him so greatly. And there are so many other stories that I wish I had time to share with you about forgiveness and about the, the power it can have on really showing Christ's likeness through the, through the action. But the point is that forgiveness may not always be easy. And it, it will require a fair deal of humility and willingness to let go of someone's pride and bitterness. But forgiveness demonstrates Christ-likeness in the life of a believer. One of the evidences that a person is a believer comes in their ability to forgive other people. Because when we realize how much we have been forgiven by the Lord, forgiving others is comparatively easy compared to how much we have been forgiven. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you that we realize from this passage that, Lord, we are that man who was so greatly in debt, Lord. We, we owed an amass, amount, a massive amount of debt, Lord, a sin debt that we could never pay, a sin debt that, Lord, you sent your son to the cross to pay for us. And, Lord, we realize that we have been forgiven a tremendous amount. And, Lord, anything else in life that people offend us with, Lord, should be so easy for us because of how much you have forgiven us. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us, Lord, if we are harboring bitterness or anger towards someone else. Lord, I pray that we would 
forgive that person, release them of that, um, of that debt that we are holding over them, Lord. I pray that, Lord, we would continually and daily administer forgiveness to others who have wronged us, and that, Lord, we would not harbor it or we not become bitter over it. I pray, Lord, that we would grow into and becoming more and more Christ-like through this, and that, Lord, we would honor you through our actions. In your name I pray. Amen.